something of what I want to preach this morning speaks of a legacy that we leave for other people. And as we start at the beginning of the year, I'd like to try and speak around something of what we're going to leave for future generations. And uh, I think that's a good way to start the year. And interestingly enough, my, my message has this, might seem a strange title. It's simply this, happy to be sad. Happy to be sad. And um, we're going to get back to James, all right? And just keep that title in your mind as I talk this morning, because it actually is a very encouraging message if you get to grips with what I'm going to say. So James chapter 4, verse 9, we're going to go back to James, and we are going to finish this last chapter of James chapter 4 and 5 in the next couple of months, all right? And so we're drawing to an end in our journey through James. And James chapter 4, verse 9 says this, be wretched, mourn and weep, let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom, humble yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Humble before yourself before the Lord, and He will exalt you. Hence the title, Happy to be Sad. And I, you might be saying to me, and what on earth would you want to preach that for on the first Sunday of the new year? <laughs> well, I hope it becomes apparent as we go forward. But just to remind you where we've been in James. We're considering, we're talking about, we're discussing these positive steps that James is trying to encourage us in, in chapter 4, for all believers, all of us to take, to grow up into maturity, to no longer be babes in the faith, but to grow up and be men and women in the faith, to no longer walk by the flesh, to no longer live by rules, but to live by the Spirit. And James, in chapter 4, gave a number of imperatives to us as believers. He said this, Humble yourself, submit yourself to God, resist the devil, draw near to God, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. These are all the imperatives that he said that we should take as believers. And I've been trying to say to you over the last couple of months before the Christmas break that putting these things into practice in our lives in a practical way are all part of what it means to become a friend of God. Remember, that's the great theme that we've been looking at, at James, in James. Abraham was called a friend of God. What did that mean? Well, here James is helping us to understand practically what it means to become a friend of God. Not that we're just saved, but that we are intimate with God, that we enjoy a relationship with Him, that we have a friendship with Him. And the illustration that I used was like the illustration of marriage. I've been married this coming week for 20 years we made some declarations to each other when we got married. That doesn't mean that you have a great marriage just because you've made some promises to each other. What makes a great marriage is all the years you walk together, all the friendship things you have to resolve, everything that you have to work through, the joys, the highs, the lows, that makes a great marriage. And that's what James is trying to say. It's, it's not just the fact that we're saved, it's how we walk with God that determines whether we're his friend or not. Are you with me? And that's what he's been trying to unpack in chapter 4. And he's been saying, he said, uh, there are desires in us that w rage and fight within us, and that's why we fight and quarrel with each other in the church, because there are these things inside of us that we can't tame. And so he's trying to encourage us and saying that these things that push us towards our own pleasure are the very things that take us away from the, experiencing the glory of God in our lives, and that that's what spiritual adultery is. Remember he said? He said, don't be... Double-minded, that spiritual adultery, kissing the world on the one hand 
but trying to walk with God on the other hand. We can't live like that. We are split personalities. And in in chapter 4, James has been highlighting something that was absent in his day, and I believe is still absent in our day. It's called humility. And he's addressing arrogance in chapter 4, which is the opposite of humility. Arrogance that says, my opinion is the highest. My desires are the most important. My cause in the church is the most important one. And James says that's a particularly kind, that's a kind of sickness that can be in churches. And what does he say? He says the antidote to that kind of sickness is simply this, that you submit to God, you resist the devil, you humble yourself, and as you do that, God will exalt you. And so, if that's what James is encouraging us in, as we start this year, I want to say to you, that's, that's not going to just automatically happen unless we examine it ourselves at least and see where we stand in the light of what Christ has done for us. And again, I'm not talking about introversion. I'm talking about objective, um, an objective look at our lives in the light of the cross and all that Jesus has done for us. That's what I'm talking about. So all those things that draw me away from God are the very things that get in the way of me being His friend. And I want to say to you that we can make these things the agenda for our lives for the first six months of this year. To learn to submit to God. To learn to resist the devil. To learn to speak well of each other. And as we do that, we begin to walk by the Spirit and God begins to be glorified in an amazing way in the church community. I said to you last time that the temptation is that we give God five minutes a day at the beginning of the day or the end of the day and then we really spend most of our time on the television for at least a couple of hours a day. And Tom Wright, a wonderful English theologian, says this, we have a brief cleansing of the hands and then we get back to the mud and the muck. We take a short, painful glance inside of our hearts and then we decide we better wait for a better better moment to deal with it. And so you might say, well, and please don't be gloomy. It's the first Sunday of the year. I'm feeling optimistic about the year. I want to be happy. I want to be enthusiastic. Don't get all kind of gloomy with me. Well, I want to say to you, I agree with Petri. I believe if we start to understand what God is trying to say to us in this very simple verse, real joy begins to germinate in our hearts. And I want real joy in my life. I don't know about you. I don't want to go up and down just because the economy is going up and down. I want to live in a way that is consistent, that actually is above that. That whatever comes, there's joy in my heart. Now, that's a good way to start the year. And I'm fully, fully persuaded that the real road to joy is not the same road of self-satisfied happiness. And that's why James, I tried to preach the last time, I talked about clear thinking. James is trying to get us to think clearly. To be double-minded means that we give this quick nod to God. We say, yes, God, we do our little devotion in the morning, and then we walk arm in arm with the world for the rest of the day. That's what James is saying is double-mindedness. I'm saying to you, that's not the road to friendship with God. If we want to be friends with God, something radical has to happen in our own lives, in how we see the Word, we see Jesus, and that our gaze is fixed on Him. And so, last time we had a look, and James says, cleanse your hands and purify your hearts. Remember, he's talking about two things that need to happen. Why? Because he's concerned about 
the reputation of Christianity. He's concerned about these, his friends that he's writing to. He's saying, you're having an effect on the world, and he wants that effect to be consistent. And, and for them as individuals, he wants them also to enjoy a peace that comes when you're not double-minded. Haven't you found that when you can't make up your mind, when you're double-minded and you're up and down, there's no peace? Isn't that true? In your life, when you know that God, your eye is fixed on Jesus, there's a peace that comes into every area of your life when your, your, your heart is fixed on the things of the kingdom. And I want to just say to you, so much of our wrestling in our lives is because we are double-minded. We, we kind of, I don't know where I want to live. I want to live here. I want to live there. I want to live in Australia because the sun shines and I don't like it that the sun doesn't shine here. I, I, want to, I want to have this job, not that job. We're always restless, always unsettled. But when the kingdom comes first, wherever you live, whether the sun shines or it doesn't, you are at peace and there's joy. That's what I'm saying. And so that brings me to this very verse that I'm trying to start, I want to expand with you today. And your first reaction to this verse might be, this is incredibly morbid and depressing. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. I mean, that seems incredibly morbid. <laughs> but I believe it's on the heart of God that we pre- I preached this verse this morning. The joy of mourning. Being happy to be sad, what does that mean? I want to suggest to you this morning, that is the pathway of true friendship with God. And if you will bear with me for the next 15 minutes. When we take this verse out of context, it gives people the idea that Christianity really is a depressing, morbid way of life. To an unspiritual, worldly Christian who doesn't understand this verse, it means the same thing. I believe that when we do begin to understand what James is saying to us here, it leads us onto a road of great joy, great blessing, fulfillment in the Holy Spirit, joy and blessing and friendship with God. I want to say to you, that's a wonderful way to start this year, being, knowing that we're on the road to friendship with God, intimacy with Him. Not just that we're saved, of course we're saved, saved by faith, but that we are enjoying an intimacy with Jesus that is free of legalism and rooted in the grace of God. Amen? So what I want to say to you straight up, and it's a very simple message this morning, the first thing is this. It's vital that you and I understand that we are saved by faith. Okay? We are saved by faith. Absolutely nothing else saves us. We are saved by believing on the finished work of Jesus on the cross. What follows the fact that we are saved is we start to change. In other words, I'm talking about repentance. You don't have to first get every area of your life into order so that you can get saved. Now you might say, well, that's an obvious thing. I want to say to you that's not an obvious thing. Much of the church over the years has preached that. That you have to get all of your life into order so that you please God so that you can be saved. I want to say to you, the order of how you understand salvation is absolutely vital because it affects every area of your life. It affects the joy with which you live. It affects how you see other people. It affects how much you want to evangelize. It is an incredibly important issue. We are first saved by believing on Jesus. And then our behavior starts to change as the Holy Spirit starts to change us. Not the other way around. 
If you try the other way around, what does it lead to? Incredible legalism, unhappiness, people being judgmental over others and saying, you better behave better like this in the church. No, no, don't worry about anyone else's behavior. You fix your eyes on Jesus. Let him transform you from the inside out. And I promise you this, as you do that and God changes you, he'll do that to everybody else as well who's truly got their eyes fixed on him. Yes? Don't worry about other people's behavior. You worry about your own behavior. You worry about what God is doing in your life. I want to worry about what God is doing in my life. Right? So what I'm talking about then is repentance. And simply, the word repentance comes from the Greek metanoia, which simply means to change your mind. To change your mind. And that's why I'm saying it's vital for us to understand what comes first. Faith or repentance. The problem is that you and I have inherited a way of thinking that stems from the Puritans. The Puritans were around in the 1500s when Elizabeth I was on the throne in England. And basically the Puritans were called Puritans in a derogatory way because they were a bunch of people, largely lay people, largely merchants, and uh, storekeepers, etc. They weren't many of them in the nobility or the, or, or the uh, hierarchy of the day. And they simply said this. They simply wanted to purify the Anglican church of all the vestiges of Catholicism that had resulted because Elizabeth had made a deal with the Anglican church, basically. And so they became known as the Puritans. And uh, they tried to purify the church in the way that they saw things needed to be purified. The problem is this, is that they taught repentance means you must turn from every known sin. Now you see, that's why we've inherited their thinking. That's why many people think repentance means you've got to turn immediately from every known sin, which is true in a way. It is, involves a change of, of your mind, it does. But the Bible doesn't speak about repentance and salvation necessarily Together, And what I want to just say to you is the best example I can think of it is Matthew 3, verse 8, where, where John the Baptizer, he says this, John the Baptist, he says, Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. What John is trying to say is that we show in our lives the fruit that has the same value as what we understand by repentance. So he's not just calling for a change of mind. He's saying, yes, we must change our minds. But he's also calling for that fruit of that changed mind in our life. That's what John the Baptizer is calling for. And it's for that reason that he goes on, John, and he challenges his brother Philip's wife, whom Herod had taken. And he clearly just says to Herod, it's not lawful that you have this woman. And why could he say that? Because he's saying, he was preaching, there must be fruit of repentance in your life. There must be evidence of a changed mind in how you live. What I want to say to you this morning, though, is that the Bible, when it comes in the New Testament, when it comes to talking about being saved, it never, ever says you must change your life before you get saved. It says you get saved by faith. And then after you are saved, you let the Holy Spirit change you. And some, somehow the church has got it all mixed up, and we expect people to come into the church and be perfect so they can join the church. That ain't the, what the Bible teaches. Are you with me? I'm so grateful for that because my life has been messed up in many ways for many, many years. I'm also the product of a dysfunctional family. My, I came from a good family, but all families are dysfunctional in some way, aren't they? 
We saw a great movie this, week, this uh, holiday that I really recommend you go and see. It's called Parental Guidance. It's um, Billy Crystal and... Uh, what's her name? Beth Midler. They play, uh, they play grandparents, and they are asked by their daughter to come and look after the kids, the grandchildren, for a week while they go away on business. It's a very funny movie where you see how worldviews affect the way that you do things and how the grandparents want to parent these kids very differently from how the kids have done it. It's very, very funny. But um, how did I get onto that? I don't know. But anyways, it's, it's a good, it's a good, good uh, movie. <laughs> Distinction. Okay, so my first point is this. <clears throat> We're not saved by repentance. We are not saved by repentance. It's, I've said this over and over. I want to say it again. It's very easy to become a Christian. All you have to do, the Bible says, is look to Jesus. Confess that you need Him. That's all you have to do. You have to put all of your faith in what Jesus has done for you and believe that that faith saves you. That's all you have to do to become a Christian. Very, very easy. Anyone can do that. We are not changed, we're not saved by repentance, we are saved by faith. And that's what Luther rediscovered in the Reformation. And I want to say to you that you and I, we need to cling on to that truth with all of our hearts, that we are saved by faith, not by good works. We are saved by faith, putting all our trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we are saved. Having said that, I do believe this equally. When we do know God, when we are saved, He does want us to be godly. He does want us to live godly lives that honor Him. He is very interested in joyful obedience in our lives. Very interested. But I say this, God grants us faith so that He might teach us repentance in that order. God grants us faith that we are saved, that we see Christ, so that we can learn repentance. We can learn to live our lives in a way that pleases Jesus. And that's why James said, draw near to God and He will draw near to you. And what he meant was when we draw close to God and we, we are able to turn from every sin. However, it's impossible to turn from every sin until we know God. You hear what I'm saying? And it's in that order. And so there's this joyful obedience that I'm trying to encourage you in. A spirit-led life that joyfully is transformed as we simply obey Jesus in our lives. And my friends, I'm saying that is what is going to be a testimony and a witness to a world that doesn't know Him. People joyfully obeying Jesus without being forced to because they love Him. That's what's going to transform our families and our communities is that kind of faith. Why is James so concerned about this? Well, he was, he was concerned about this to this group of people he was writing to because remember, he was concerned that they, were, that they weren't aware of their sin. Why? Because they were discriminating in the church. They were saying, we like rich people, we don't like poor people. Rich people, please come sit in the front. Poor people, sit at the back. That's one of the things they were doing, discriminating in the church. He said also that they were fighting with each other. There were little camps in the church. I'm the Holy Spirit camp. I'm the Word camp. I'm the this camp, I'm the that camp. He says that kind of stuff, that's discrimination. That shouldn't be part of the church. That's just sin. And so he wants them to be aware of those things, and he wants them to come to conviction that those things are wrong. And so the first aim that, J the first aim that James has for this group of people, and I believe God has for any church, is to get us to realize that those kind of things are sin that we need to be convicted of. 
that there needs to be some conviction that we want those things to change. And secondly, James has got this, this uh, desire to see contrition. Remember I spoke about these three C's last time. Conviction, contrition, and then confession that we actually can say, yep, that is wrong. We don't want to embrace that. So let me talk a little bit as a third point this morning about conviction and contrition when it comes to repentance, comes to sin. If we confess our sin without any contrition, without there being any conviction that it is wrong, it's absolutely meaningless. Our our confession is meaningless. There's no ways that you can be contrite unless you have first been convicted about something. And that's why in verse 9, what James is really doing is examining what it means to be contrite, to have a heart that is humble, to have a heart that is aware that it's hurt other people. That's what I'm go- where I'm going with this. He's saying we need that kind of contrite heart. And so he uses this language. He says, that's why he says, be wretched, be mournful, weep, turn your laughter into mourning. The value of what James is trying to say in this verse is that there is a proof in terms when our hearts are contrite and humble, there's a proof that we have been convicted of sin. You hear what I'm saying? If you can be convicted about sin and not worry about sin, I must ask this question. Have you really seen what that sin has resulted in? And James wants all of us to see that. He wants us to reflect back on what our priest on last time. He wants us to think clearly about our lives. Not be double-minded. And that's why he said, cleanse your hands, purify your hearts. And he follows that by saying, mourn and weep. Turn your laughter into mourning. He says that that simply because there's a danger for every one of us as a Christian, that we think everything is well, all is well with us, because we have outwardly repented and changed our behavior. We think everything is well. What James is saying is we've got to take time to consider that there's a warped thinking that has crept into our lives and has resulted in the improper behavior in the first place. And he's saying, take time to let the Holy Spirit change your thinking so that you don't behave like that anymore. How we think really does matter. This is the most crucial point I want to say to you this morning. How you think really does matter. Even if we've been backslidden for a moment, temporarily, how many of us realize that in that moment of backsliddenness we have begun to think like the world, we've begun to embrace a worldview that is not Christian, it's alien to the kingdom of God, and then we think, well, we've changed our outward behavior, everything is fine. No, there's there's a deeper reformation that God is calling every one of us to, and I use that word purposefully, as you'll see now, a reformation that changes not only our behavior, but it changes our thinking. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see, thinking that our change, if we think that our, our thinking automatically changes because we change our behavior, we are not allowing the Spirit of God to go deep into our hearts. I was doing some reading this week. I want to give you one example from church history which illustrates what I'm trying to say. How many of you have heard of a guy called Thomas Aquinas? Thomas Aquinas was a famous, famous um, thinker, writer, who was uh, around the Reformation time. And um, 
he learnt much of what he, he preached through a guy called Albert the Great. Albert the Great was the guy who introduced him to the writings of Aristotle. Aristotle is a Greek uh, philosopher, as you know, right? And during the Reformation, much of the church went through this radical time where they started to change outward behavior. So, in reaction to the Catholic Church, they started seeing the Virgin Mary in a very different way. They started thinking about purgatory in a very different way. They started thinking about repentance in a very different way. Justification, the communion, how we break bread, and all these things were radically changed during the Reformation. Those were the outward things that were changed. But within two generations, it became quite apparent that their thinking had not changed sufficiently. And so, through Aquinas, who adopted this Aristotelian, I can't remember, what's the word? The, the, the thinking of Aristotle, um, what became apparent is that even though some things had changed in the church, they were still thinking like Greek philosophers. They weren't thinking like Bible-believing people. And what Aristotle said was most important was logic and deduction, and that if A and B equals C, then it always is like that. And we are never, never called as Bible-believing Christians to purely interpret the Scripture on logic. We are called to interpret Scripture with Scripture. And there, can, there is a profound difference between those two things. Because sometimes the Scripture calls us to, to embrace things by faith that do not seem logical. Are you with me? And so we're not called to be Greek philosophers. We are called to be Bible-believing Christians. Of course, we don't throw our brains away, but we believe things by faith because of the Word of God and the truth of Jesus. It doesn't always mean it's going to be logical. Are you with me? And much of the Roman Catholic Church has adopted this Aristotelian kind of reasoning. It's also true as, of us as individuals. We can be individual Christians that, are, that has wandered from the faith. We've, we've been backslidden for a time, and we come back to faith, and we repent, and we stop sinning. But we don't realize that while we were backslidden, along the way, we've picked up from our culture a whole lot of baggage. And it can be around issues of political things, philosophical things, social norms, cultural things that the culture accepts and says are fine, but they are all alien to a kingdom worldview. Are you with me? And there are some very glaring issues right now in the church, in the broader church, the traditional churches that people are wrestling with, which I want to say are not biblical, um, to be debated biblically. They are issues of politics and they are issues of worldly thinking trying to push themselves onto the church. And the call on you and I is to stand on what the Bible says whether society says it is right or not. I believe marriage is between a man and a woman. Always has been, always will be. I saw something on Facebook this week where someone posted this that said, actually, what is most important is that two people love each other. That's the most important thing. Love is the most important thing. Love is a very important thing. The most important thing is that we are people of the Word. What does God say? I don't care whether... David Cameron says it's okay for two people of the same sex to get married and to try and redefine marriage. I don't care. Why? Because the Word of God is quite clear. <laughs> I want to say you have to be brave. 
you have to have courage. Because the time is coming where I think we will be persecuted in the church for believing, standing on such things. But I want to say to you that that's the road to real joy. When we are embracing the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes? Am I being too serious this morning? <laughs> I'm trying not to be. It really is a good message. I promise you it's a good message. We've got to see the connection. What I'm talking about this morning is a reformation. That we are reformed. You see, James wants us to see that any change that is taking place in our lives is complete change. It's not just a change of changing our behavior. He wants a single-mindedness. He's calling us to a single-mindedness that we put Christ first in everything. First, primarily, and at the end, is Jesus. All-sufficient Savior, Jesus. That's what we fix our minds on. And we don't pres- presume that our thinking automatic- automatically makes is so changed that we are single-minded, just automatically like that. That's what he's saying. And so... James also wants us to see that God is serious about happy obedience. He's serious about holy living. He's, and he's not, it's not talking simply about outward behavior. He's trying to say this to us, that our very minds, our minds are vehicles of grace to be used by the Lord Jesus. The most powerful thing that you and I can do is to help our kids think clearly, to understand clearly so they can go through their lives and live powerfully for the kingdom, not just be worried about whether they behave well. See, James really is concerned about the future of Christianity, and that's why I said to you this morning, the big thrust of this message for you and for me this morning is this, what are we going to leave to our kids? Michael Eaton's wife, we were having lunch once, and she said to me, we were just talking about um, the church and uh, understanding the gospel and preaching and the gift of preaching, and she said this to me. She said, Michael and RT, are in the la- all of, both of them are in their 70s now. Who are the next generations of preachers that will preach like this? That's what she said to me. It changed my life. Who are the next generations of preachers that will preach like this? In other words, when they're gone, who are the men and women that will preach this message of freedom to people? And maybe there's some of you that will be those men and women that will preach this kind of message. This is what I want to say. God wants this change in us to be so complete that we can hand on to our children and the next generation an inheritance that is free from error, an inheritance that will not repeat the false assumptions of the past. That's what God wants us to hand on. And if the devil can't catch you and I out in terms of our outward behavior, he will try and catch you and I out in the way that we think. God wants pure and undefiled religion. That's what James says to us. What is pure and undefiled religion? Is it not this, to take care of the widow and the broken and the fatherless? That's what God wants us to hand on to those that come afterwards. We, we have to pass on to our children the great gift of godly living. Godly living includes good behavior, but godly living must include right thinking about the kingdom, about what is really valuable. Those are the things that motivate us. 
from the inside. That's what James really is on about. It's a great responsibility that we have. The truth is that our children do watch us, and they watch our lives, and they repeat what we, what we uh, live. That's a difficult thought as a parent, isn't it? It's a sobering thought as a parent. I want to say to you this true. It's also true of the church family. People in the church repeat and learn how we behave. So if we live lives of grace that are centered on the life of Christ, and we celebrate the freedom that we have in Jesus, and we don't live by rules, people pick that up. If we live by rules, subtly live by rules, religion comes on people and they pick it up. I finish with this. Three practical reasons why we should be happy to be sad. <laughs> why we should be happy to mourn. Yeah, they are. One, so we can all see how our warped thinking has grieved God. All sin primarily grieves God. When David was caught in adultery, his first cry, the first thing he said was, God, it's against you and you alone that I've sinned. He understood that. When, when David, uh, or rather J- Joseph, when he had the in- incident with Potiphar's wife in, in Genesis 39.9, his reaction was this. He said, how can I do this great wickedness, in other words, sleep with this woman, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was his first, his heart. He, he understood all sin, all things that we do, hurt God primarily first. Then he said, uh, second thing I want to say, is we should be happy to be sad about mourn over sin in our lives because we ought to see how our warped thinking has damaged our own lives. That's a thing to mourn over. We are the losers in our own lives because of warped thinking. Our lives are affected. We suffer arrested development. Remember our preached the message about that? We stop growing when we don't think well, when we don't think correctly. And that affects our families. It affects our children. It affects us. When we are rebels against God, when we are backslidden, it radically damages our lives. It radically damages communities. We should mourn at our sin. Grieves God, it hurts us. Thirdly, it hurts other people. I've, I've had to really, in my own life, consider this. That my own thinking and the way that I've done things, sometimes when it's been wrong, that wrong thinking does impact on other people, especially in the church community. And wrong thinking can hurt others as well. It hurts God, it affects our own lives, but it hurts other people. And people take us at our word, and people take us seriously, and they believe that we, what we say, and so our thinking when it's wrong can damage other people. And we need to be aware of that. And so James doesn't just stop there and say, be aware of it. He uses this very simple phrase. He says, we should weep. The Greek literally means to shed tears. <laughs> to shed tears. Is this a happy message at 2013? Yes, it is. I'm getting to the happy part. He says, we should weep. What he's trying to say is that there should be a... We should deal with flippancy in our lives. We, we should deal with a, a superficiality in our lives. And when we have a great revelation of Jesus, when we have a big understanding of God in our lives, then we will mourn for sin. We will mourn for what grieves Jesus, who is the first in the first place of our hearts. Are you with me? That's what James is saying. So without getting all introverted, I want to say this to you. I want to ask this of you this morning. 
Are you sorry for some of the things in your life in the way that you might have lived? Have you ever stopped to think what God might think of how you've lived? Or how I've lived? How do you feel about some of the things you might have done that might have affected other people negatively? Do you really want the peace that comes and the peace that is promised, that James promises us, that comes from clear thinking, that comes from a single-minded focus on the kingdom? Do you really want that kind of breakthrough? Well, if you do, this is what James says. He says it to you, he says it to me. Be wretched, mourn, weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself before the Lord. What he's saying is admit that you've screwed up. Admit it. First of all, admit it to yourself. So much of our lives are trying to say that we haven't really screwed up that it's everybody else's problem. James is saying, admit. The, the place to start is admit to yourself that you've screwed up and that you've screwed up and it's hurt God, it's hurt your own life, and it's hurt other people. That's the place to start. That real joy starts to flow after you've admitted that to yourself and to God. That's what he's saying. But thank God that he doesn't end there. Did you notice that I didn't read the whole sentence? Because what does he say? He says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and then he adds a little four or five little words, and he will exalt you. God's promise to us is that as we admit these things, it's not that we grovel forever. It's not that we mourn forever. It's not that we weep and we cry forever. No, that's not the joy of Christianity. This is the joy of Christianity. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Amen. Psalm 126, verse 5. That's the cry, the overriding cry of the Scripture. Psalm 30, verse 5. His anger is for a moment, but His favor is for a lifetime. Yes, please. God might be angry for a moment. When we come to our senses, there's grace, there's forgiveness. He releases us and we enjoy His favor for our lives. A lifetime. Weeping might be tarry for the night, but joy comes in the morning. I want to encourage you, maybe you've had a time of weeping in your life over things. Well, joy comes in the morning. Joy has come. Joy is come. Morning has broken, Cat Stevens saying. What does the psalmist go on to say in verse 11 of Psalm 30? He says, You have turned for me my morning into dancing. It's exactly the opposite of what James is saying. You have loosened my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory might be to sing your praise and not be silent. O Lord my God, I will give thanks to you forever. So as we look forward to a great year in 2013, I'll leave you with this thought. God does want you to be happy. God wants me to be happy. He's smiling on us. His favor is upon us. He's well pleased with us because of His Son. These are things we've said over and over. I said last week, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the foundation of the gospel. This is the foundation of our lives. This is what we want to be the foundation of this church. But what I'm saying to you is what the Holy Spirit said through Petri this morning. True happiness only comes from true holiness. True holiness leads to happiness and joy. And how do we get right? By God, 
we get right with God. As He saved us, we become aware of the things that grieve Him. And by the Spirit, we put those things to death. And we learn to walk by the Spirit. We learn to walk free as He changes us without condemnation. So I want to encourage you as we look forward to this year that there might be weeping for nights, but joy comes in the morning. And I want to ask you, as we set the tone of 2013, that you be honest with God, just as I'm trying to be honest with God, that you be honest with yourself. We are all saved by faith. That's sure. That's true. That is irrevocable. But what might God be saying to you as an individual? What might God be saying to you in terms of what needs to change in your thinking? What needs to change in your thinking? Because what flows behavior flows out of thinking. The battle is in the mind. Our outward behavior does need to show the fruit of repentance. But remember, our minds are vehicles for God's grace to be used by Him. And so I'm encouraging all of us into a reformation that is complete. A reformation that is not just only concerned with outward behavior, but it's concerned with an inward transformation of our hearts and our minds and how we think and what we value so that what we pass on to our kids in 40, 50, 60 years' time is a gospel that is pure. It is free from, as much as we are able to understand, it is free from error and it liberates people into the freedom that Christ has brought to them. That's the great inheritance that we can hand on to our children and those that come after us. Amen?